morning, everybody. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church and delighted to welcome you. Last week, we started a new message series entitled The Language of God. We're talking about faith and science, and we're going to jump right in. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 today. This is for many of us uh, the most important passage about creation. I'm going to in a few weeks challenge that I think there may be one chapter even more important for learning about what God has made. But Genesis chapter 1 is very important, and let's start there today. When it comes to faith and science, the one topic uh, that seems to be most interesting or most controversial for people these days is the whole question of evolution. So let's talk about that. 1925, July, was the hottest and driest summer on record across the United States. Uh, our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents probably for most of us, uh, our great-grandparents got their work done every single day so they could come in and listen to the radio, boys and girls. They listened to the radio. That's all they had. Uh, because the whole nation uh, during that week in July, they were following a particular trial out of Dayton, Tennessee that came to be known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. And even in those days, they called it the Monkey Trial. They were listening to the Monkey Trial. It was a trial of a man named John Thomas Scopes, who was a 24-year-old science teacher down in Ray County, Tennessee. Uh, John Thomas Scopes was actually recruited by the ACLU. A uh, Tennessee legislator had just passed a law that, that, that said no public uh, school teacher can teach evolution in school. The ACLU wanted to challenge that, and so they recruited John Thomas Scopes, a young man who would purposely go into his classroom, teach evolution, break the law, and, uh, and suffer the fine, and then they could take that to court, and that's what they did. The whole nation became riveted around this court trial, uh, not in, in a small way because the lawyers themselves were very famous and very colorful. Clarence Darrow became the defender of John Thomas Scopes. He was a very famous lawyer in his time. He was probably the, the, the Johnny Cochran, if you know who Johnny Cochran is. He was probably the Johnny Cochran of his day. He was a very belligerent and outspoken atheist. Okay, so Clarence Darrow was an atheist. The other attorney was a, a very famous politician named William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan had been Secretary of State, I believe, very, very famous, prominent celebrity politician, but also very well known as sort of a lay preacher. He preached revivals. He was a Presbyterian. And William Jennings Bryan was a very passionate, devoted follower of Christ. So you have these two lawyers, an atheist and a Christian preacher, who are sort of facing off every single day in the courtroom in Dayton, Tennessee. It started out as a trial about academic freedom, but it quickly became this incredible debate between the atheist, uh, scientist, and, and the Christian preacher. The climax of the whole thing was at the end where Clarence Darrow, again, the atheist attorney, he called the other attorney to the stand. I don't know how commonly this even happens, but he put William Jennings Bryan on the stand, the Christian, and so uh, on radio across the nation, our great-grandparents listened to this debate as the atheist attorney was questioning the, the, the Christian attorney on the stand, primarily to give an account and explanation for his understanding of Genesis chapter 1. So the whole trial just became this debate between the atheist and the Christian who, who uh, believed the Bible. If you know anything about the trial, it kind of fizzled. Neither side got what they wanted. But since 1925, the whole question of evolution in our culture has continued to be framed between the, the, the atheists and the Christians. 
And it seems like when it comes to evolution and science, actually, uh, it's the atheists who kind of own that. The atheists who have evolution, they love evolution. And honestly, for atheists, evolution does give them this opportunity to create this grand theory of everything that excludes God. So none of us wants to side with the atheists. But at the same time, some of us actually have a, a passion and a curiosity and a love of science. And so when it comes to science questions, especially the evolution question these days, a lot of people feel pressed to choose a side. And it's the same two sides that were marked out in 1925. You feel like if you have any sort of interest in evolution that you're automatically siding with the atheists. But I continue to question whether or not that's actually a, a legitimate kind of choice. My hunch is that's a false choice. I'm not sure that necessarily to, to even think about evolution is to side with the atheist. So the question becomes, can you possibly believe in a creator God? Here's my big question. Can you believe in the creator God, remain committed to the authority of Scripture, and at the same time accept the idea that God may have accomplished part of his creative purposes by allowing things to change over time? Is that possible? Now, when I talk about change over time, that's just what evolution is as a biological process. God created that. Everybody knows that things change over time. The question becomes how much change and how much time has God built into his creative purposes in bringing everything into existence? How much change over time? Can you believe in the creator God? Can you remain committed to the word of God? And can you at the same time talk it all about evolution? Let's look at it. Genesis chapter 1. Let's start right there. Let's dig in together. Let's start with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. In the Hebrew, he says, light be. I love that. And God said, light be. And light was. And God saw the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came the first day. Let's stop there. Okay, if the question pertains to whether or not God and his creative purposes would allow things to change over time, again, the question becomes how much time how much time? Now, when scientists talk today, and I'm not talking about atheists. We're not in any way trying to, to get on their side. I'm talking about honest scientists, people who study the things that God has made and come back and give us honest observations. Many of these folks to talk about the, the, the apparent way that creation has changed a great deal, so much that you would have to be talking about tremendous periods of time. But most of us, when we read Genesis chapter 1, we don't find that much time here. It looks like seven very straightforward 24-hour days. So it looks like God accomplishes everything that he meant to accomplish in 24, uh, seven 24-hour days. But let's start here. Let me call you back to verse 1 and 2. Let me just show you this, and I'm not the first one to see this. This is an old, old observation for Christians. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering, was brooding over the waters. Now, even as a kid in church, I remember getting to that verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I can remember thinking, water? 
who said anything about water? You know, all of a sudden, you've got, you've got water. Now, incidentally, if, if you saw our movie last week when we were talking about uh, the privileged planet, scientists always insist that the number one ingredient for any form of life is Water, liquid water. So it's amazing that Genesis actually does begin with, with God brooding, hovering over the, the, the waters. But you'll notice God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. There was light. There was evening and morning the first day. If you look there, you'll see that, that we don't know how much time is in verses 1 and 2. It's in verses 3, 4, and 5 that those days of creation start to be counted. After God says, let there be light, and he separates the day from the night, and there was evening and morning the first day. That happens in verse 5, but verses 1 and 2, we don't know how much time is comprised there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and vast and empty, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Hebrew word there is, is brooding. My grandma Harris used to raise chickens, and she had back in behind her house uh, a brooding house, a brooder house. It's a place where I, I believe the hens were allowed to lay eggs, and we left them alone. You didn't gather those eggs. You just let the hens brood. They were allowed to sit on the nest and hatch those eggs. So it's this picture of, of, of the Spirit of God brooding over creation, brooding over the waters of, of, of creation. It's really, really fascinating. But the point is, we don't know how long the Spirit of God brooded over creation here. We don't know how much time elapses between that at first creation, the heavens and the earth, and then the day when the evening and morning pass, and God calls that the first day. You see that? It's sometimes called the gap theory. It's just that basic observation that there could be tremendous, tremendous gaps of time between when God creates and then when that first day gets named. What that allows for is any amount of time that God would choose. It could be millions, billions of years, what we don't know. I'm just simply saying that it's God and God alone, and, and God doesn't wear a watch, Understand? He's not contained in time. Time doesn't pertain to him at all. God is eternal. So we have no idea how much time elapses. The, the, the basic observation there just lets us at least say scripturally that there's all the possibility that the universe, that the earth itself could be very, very ancient. Very, very ancient. Millions, billions of years if you want. Scripture would not in any way forbid you from thinking that. As a matter of fact, some of us read that and think that that's probably likely, that the heavens and the earth that God has created could be millions, billions of, of years old. Very possible when you just simply read Genesis. Let's, let, let's go on, though. Pick up with me, verse 6. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters above from the waters below. And that's what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. And God called the space sky. And evening passed and morning came, marking the second day. Okay. Look at the scripture with me, verse 6. God said, let there be a space between the waters. Let, let there be a separation between the waters above, the waters of the heavens, and, and the waters below. If you were here last week, remember we talked about how the, the ancient Jews, the ancient people thought of the cosmos, the way they pictured the universe. Now, 
everybody, until the 15th century, everybody assumed that the earth was flat. We talked about that last week. But you notice in Scripture, in the Old Testament, there's this idea that, that the universe itself is, is water. And so when God creates, what he does is he literally has to separate out the water. He separates, he creates a space where he separates the waters above from the waters below. It's verse 6. And then the earth is there. So, so he spreads the earth out. The earth is flat in, in, in this view. The earth is flat. And there's water down here, and there's water up here. And God creates the sky like a bowl, the firmament. It's this bowl that sits over the earth and, and keeps the waters above and the waters below. You see, there's that space that God, God creates, calls this sky. Now, the first thing that we all have to recognize is that is not a scientific description of the universe. It's just not. This idea of a flat earth and water above and water below, that's, that's just not what we know about the universe now if you want to talk scientifically. The problem for some people is that Genesis 1 just doesn't give that kind of scientific description. What do you say about that? What do we do about that? Well, I will say this is God's word. This is God's word. And God is revealing to us what he wants us to know about creation. And typically, by tradition, we say that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. So Moses now is writing about things that he wasn't there to see. Only God can reveal what happened at creation. God was the only one there. You with me? So God inspires, God reveals to Moses what Moses needs to know so that Moses can tell us what we need to know. This is a need-to-know sort of situation. And what you need to know is that God does not seem to choose to tell us everything we want to know, does not answer all of our questions, and we really don't get a scientific description of how everything came into being. We don't get that because God chooses not to give us that. But God gives us this. God gives us Genesis chapter 1, and I'm telling you, he gives us this because this is what he wants us to have, and this is what he wants us to know. There are still many, many things that God leaves hidden in the universe for us to discover, and he delights in that discovery, but this is what we need to know. You with me? And what we need to know is, is actually this. This is my summary here. Number one, God is the origin and source of all else. This is what Genesis establishes. It's what you need to know. God is the origin and source of all else. He alone is the Alpha. What do I mean by that? The, the, the alpha. Like alpha dog. The alpha as in God is the alpha and the omega. Yeah, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. It's like A to Z. God is the alpha. He is the beginning. He is the uncreated creator of everything. Uncreated creator. I, I put this in because last week almost all the questions from the first sermon on faith and science came from little kids. And one of our little kids, his name is Carver. He's got blonde hair. He's really, really cute. Carver came after church and said, Brother Tim, who created God? And just looked at me. Who created God? It's a great question. I've asked it too. And this is my answer to Carver and everybody else. Nobody created God. That's what makes God God. He is the uncreated creator. Nobody comes before God. 
to make him. Do you understand? There is no one else. He's the uncreated creator of everything without peer or rival. There are no others. Now, if you listen to atheists sometimes when they're trying to talk us out of our reliance on Scripture, the atheists will say, well, now, that Genesis chapter 1, that creation myth in Scripture is just one of many creation myths. And they would point out that ancient civilizations from nearly everywhere have some sort of ancient story of origins, a creation myth. And they would simply say that we need to get used to the fact that our creation myth is just one among others. Okay, they're correct in pointing out that ancient civilizations tend to have a story of origin. Almost all of them have a creation myth. They're incorrect, though, in saying that ours is just one of the others. Number one, we fully believe that this is God's word. It's inspired. This is what God wants us to know. This isn't just a human idea of where things come from. This is God's revelation of what he did. Understand? But one of the things that really makes this story, what God reveals, different from all of the other stories, every other story, listen to me, this is how Genesis is different. There's one God. There's one God. This is the amazing revelation of Genesis chapter 1. I know you take it for granted, but when Genesis 1 was first revealed and first written and first began to be shared, you need to understand, in the ancient world, everybody worshiped multiple gods. They worshiped lots of gods. It's the God of Scripture who reveals himself as the one who alone is God, the origin and source of everything else. He has no peer. He has no rival. There are no other deities. Now, when other people worshiped other gods, what did they worship? Who did they worship? Well, they tended to worship things like sky. They worship the sky. Or they would worship the sun. They worshiped the moon. They would worship uh, amazing trees, giant trees, or they would worship animals. And this is what you need to at least see when you read Genesis chapter 1. Part of what God is revealing here, part of what is demonstrated as these days of creation tick by, is the amazing way that God is established as God and God alone. And all of these other things that people worship are just simply dismissed. They are parts of creation, just simply what God makes. So imagine what it would be like to be among those people who worship the sky, and then you read Genesis 1, and it says God just steps out, makes the sky. He just makes the sky. He doesn't even break a sweat to do it. He just calls it sky. Understand? There's no rival there. He doesn't have to first wrestle the, the chaos monster. That's one of the stories. God doesn't have to wrestle the chaos monster. He doesn't have to slay the sun. He doesn't have to establish his power among or above other gods. There are no other gods. It's just the things that God makes. So God makes the sky. Notice one of the big gods in the ancient world is the sun. The Aztecs, all of the ancient civilizations tended to worship the sun. But in Genesis chapter 1, first God makes light, and then later he makes the sun. You know, just kind of makes that later. And in Genesis chapter 1, they don't even dignify the sun by calling it the sun. It's just called that big thing in the sky in the daytime. I mean, that's what he calls it, just the big thing in the day. And then the moon, people worship, I mean, dude, they worship the moon. 
But in Genesis, the moon's just, you know, a thing in the sky at night. There are no rival gods. God is God alone. He doesn't have to establish his power in a cosmic struggle against other powers. He creates all things and his word alone is supreme. It's just his word. All he has to do is want something, will something, and speak it into existence. He doesn't break a sweat here. He doesn't have to roll up his sleeves. He just speaks the galaxies. He speaks the universe. He just creates it all by his word. And it's good. Now, whatever else you read into or draw out of Genesis, you've got to understand that this is the big stuff. This is what God is revealing. This is what you need to know. Now, he's not going to answer all your questions about where it all comes from. It's beside the point. You need to know who it comes from and that he alone can bring these things into existence. And he does it by his word. And by the way, he says it's good. That's what Genesis wants to communicate. That's the purpose of it. Don't be frustrated that it doesn't answer other questions. It answers what you need to know. What about the things we want to know? What if you're still asking questions about evolution? What if you're still asking questions about how long it took? Well, let's look at it. Let's read through. If the question is time, if things change over time, how much time? Let's read it through and see how much time there is here. Start with me in verse 9. God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. And that's what happened. And God called the dry ground land and the water seas. And God saw that it was, say the word, good. God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came, and that's what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. And the evening passed and morning came, marking the third day. And God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that's what happened. God made two great lights, that, that big one in the sky in the daytime, the big one, and then the, the little one at night. He also made the stars. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and night, and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed and morning came marking the... Fourth day, yeah. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Let fish fill the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Evening passed and morning came marking the... Fifth day, God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, wild animals. That's sort of all that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, okay, notice, it's different now, it's different. 
Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Nothing else in all creation is created in God's image to be like him. We're different. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on all the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And God said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that's what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. Yeah, once men and women are on the scene, it's very good. Evening passed, morning came, marking the... Sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. And on the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from his work of creation. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Well, if our question is how, how long did that take? How long did it take God to create everything? For many of us in this room, in the sound of my voice, the answer is seven days. I mean, you read the Bible and you can count seven days. There's a very careful marking of day one, day two, day three, day four, seven days. And it looks like seven 24-hour days because it clearly says there was evening and there was morning the first day. So for many, many people, it's just obvious. It's plain it took God seven days, and that's cool. It's really cool. I mean, everything that is, the galaxies, the universe, the black holes, the quasars, the quarks, I mean, all of it, Logan County, Simpson County, I mean, God did it seven days. I mean, it's miraculous to think that he could do that. What you need to understand is if it took him seven days, he's still just taking his time. He's God, and he does it simply by the power of his word. So to think that he could create everything in seven days, that's nothing. He's God. It's absolutely nothing. He has that kind of power. He has that kind of will. Whatever he wants, he just simply does. He's God. So for most people, they simply read Genesis 1. They see seven days, and that's honestly all they need to know. And if that's who you are, I just simply say, be convinced be convinced you're reading the Scripture well. That seems to be exactly a good way to interpret the Scripture. Be convinced. You don't need to change your mind. You don't need to feel like you're dumb and other people are smart. That's just what the Bible says. You can be convinced of that. But I want you to understand that there are some people who love the Bible just as much as you do, and they're reading it just as carefully as you are, but they may interpret this a little bit differently. And maybe the scripture allows for that. Now, the people who read it and see seven 24-hour days, those are typically people that, that call themselves young earth creationists. Young earth creationists. In other words, they see creation, they know that God made it, and by looking at Genesis, they can't find any great periods of time. And so by calculating very carefully the, the, the letters and numbers in Genesis, they sort of conclude that creation must be very young. 
can't possibly be more than maybe 10,000 years old, something like that. So you can't begin to talk about a, a process of evolution where things change over great periods of time, millions, billions of years. Young earth creationists see it that way. But understand, there are others who read the Bible just as carefully, and there are others who honestly really try to observe what God has made. And I'm not talking about atheists who are trying to lead everybody away from belief in God. I'm talking about people who love God and love creation and look very carefully at, at everything in the earth. And there's sort of a witness of creation that to some people suggests that the earth is very, very old. Very old, millions of years old. I mentioned last week the fossil that was found in what is now China that suggests that this creature lived 250 million years ago. Now, if there's a fossil in the earth that seems to be 250 million years old, understand the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That fossil belongs to God, and it's from him. And if this is what it seems to be, if that's true, then all truth comes from God. So is it possible, is it possible to read Genesis chapter 1 and see that kind of age in the earth, to see the possibility that God's creative purposes could have spanned not just seven 24-hour days, but maybe millions of years? Is that possible, reading Genesis chapter 1? Well, it's not if you see these as seven 24-hour days. It's just not. But the question becomes, it's God's word. Does God mean for us to read these as seven 24-hour days? I mean, you have to be discerning with Scripture. Are we supposed to read it literally? Is, is that the only way to read it? We'd probably disagree on the answer to that question, but, but let me say this. I firmly believe that with any question with Scripture, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. You let the Bible explain the Bible. And one of the interesting things about this particular chapter is that it comes up later in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. It's your homework. Hebrews chapter 4. The author of Hebrews will talk about the days of creation, specifically day number 7. When the author of Hebrews talks about the seventh day of creation, he's in this larger sermon about God's rest. And how God wants his people to enter into his rest, but God's people tend to rebel and not enter into his rest. So God declares they'll never enter my rest. It's that sermon. But when the author of Hebrews goes back and talks about Genesis chapter 1 and that seventh day of creation, the interesting thing is the author of Hebrews doesn't seem to think that the seventh day of creation was a literal 24-hour day. The author of Hebrews sees that day of rest as extending all the way into our day. That's interesting. Because if the author of Hebrews doesn't necessarily see these as 24-hour days, then, then maybe you and I don't have to either. I'm not saying you can't. But if the author of Hebrews doesn't necessarily think that you have to interpret these days literally, then maybe there's some permission. Maybe there's some room here for you and me to look deeper into it. If they're not 24 literal days, then maybe Genesis is describing these great epics in creation. God is still sovereign over all of it. It's not creating itself. It's not happening by chance. 
It's amazing to think about a creator who could create it all in seven days. I mean, that kind of power, that kind of will, I love that. But it's also, in my mind, pretty amazing to think about a God with the power and the will to sustain his creative intentions over millions, maybe billions of years. That's a great God. I don't know. We're trying to talk about God in terms of time, and, and we experience time, but God doesn't. God's infinite. God's eternal. As time passes for us, I don't know what that looks like for God. I don't know what that is in the existence in eternity for God. Anybody ever seen the movie The Matrix? I'll geek out on you. The movie The Matrix. Uh, one of the neat things about the movie The Matrix was what they called bullet time. Do you remember that? And, and it's where uh, everything gets really fast. And like you shoot a bullet out of a gun, but in bullet time in The Matrix, like they shoot the bullet and, and you'd watch the bullet going through the air. Like the bullet's going at bullet speed, but you'd observe it very, very slowly. You know, so bullet time would be really, really fast, but it would be experienced almost in slow motion. So they'd shoot the bullet at Keanu Reeves, and the bullet would go through the air. And then Keanu Reeves would be like, whoa, you know, and he would dodge the bullet. It's the idea that, that it's bullet time, but it's experienced very, very slowly. Okay, I admit, that's the worst illustration I've ever used in my whole life. But, but I'm trying to say that that what for God might be bullet time, he's in eternity, he's infinite. What for God may be bullet time, may be from our perspective a, a very long stretch of time, almost, almost impossible to comprehend. But he's God. He's God. And his ways are not our ways. And besides, he is the one for whom a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. I, I don't know. But can you believe with all your heart in the creator God and completely surrender to the authority of Scripture and still say that maybe God accomplished some of his creative purposes by letting things change over time? I think yes. I think Scripture doesn't rule that out. Now, you may say, well, it doesn't rule it in either, and I'd agree with you. I would agree with you. Bottom line, I said this last week. I want to bring you back to it. Here's a principle that I want us to follow together. We're going to trust God before human ideas. You trust God before human ideas. And evolution is a human idea. We're going to trust God before human ideas. Evolution is a human idea. And so are a lot of biblical interpretations. Let's just honest. We read the Bible and sometimes we mishandle it or we misinterpret it or we misunderstand it. And that doesn't mean that the Bible's not perfect. It just continues to remind us that we're not perfect. So sometimes we read the Bible and, and, and we misunderstand it, misinterpret it. And when we have a mishandled interpretation of Scripture, that too is a human idea. We just trust God before all human ideas. We keep coming back to Him, keep coming back to His Word. Because all truth is God's truth. You say, well, Brother Tim, I, I just let you know, I don't, I don't agree with anything you said today. I don't agree with anything about you and science. You don't have to. That's the point. 
We don't have to agree about science. As a matter of fact, we can get the science all wrong. I probably got it all wrong. We may get the science part wrong, but we're going to get the Jesus part right. Understand? Bring you back to it. The Christian message is not a science message. It's not a science message. It is a salvation message. What God reveals to us in his word is urgent. It's what you need to know, not so that you can know the mysteries of the cosmos, but it's so that you can know the God who made you. You're supposed to be brought into a saving relationship with him. It's a salvation message, not a science message. You're not confronted with a choice about science. You're confronted with a choice about Jesus, who, by the way, it says, through whom, by whom, for whom, everything was made that was made, and not anything was made without him. Do you understand? It's about Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. So let me just remind you, we don't raise ideas about science or creation to the level of the gospel. The message of the gospel does not also include a message about science. It doesn't matter what you believe about science. It matters what you believe about Jesus. That's the point. It's the point of Scripture. It actually is the point of all creation, Jesus. So I don't know where you are and I don't know how you think. I know there are a lot of people these days who feel forced into this choice, and if they love science, they feel like they automatically have to side with the atheists. You're being misled. It's not a choice between faith and science. It's a choice about Jesus. You may never fully understand how everything was made that was made, but you do need to come to an understanding of who made it and what he wants from you. And the point is, he wants to know you. He wants you to know that he knows you. He wants a relationship with you. The point of all creation is that you would come into a saving relationship with the creator. He's here. He knows you by name. He has created it all, and he has spoken your life into being. You need to know him. You need to learn to understand what it means to believe that he has made you. I'm asking you to make a decision about Jesus. He is the one through whom, for whom, by whom everything was created. And this includes your life. He made you. I'm inviting you to know him. But pray with me. God, the universe is amazing. The sky, the seasons, the return of spring, the singing of the birds, the green of the grass, the shocking blue of the sky today, Lord. It's all beautiful. And everything that you created, Lord, it exists exactly as you made it, Lord. The fish fill the sea exactly as you ordered. The sky is filled with birds exactly as you said. And the birds and the fish and all of your creation, Lord, it praises you perfectly. Everything praises you perfectly, Lord, except those that you have made in your image, except for us, men, women, boys and girls, Lord. We're the only thing in all creation that does not continue to live and exist and serve your purposes, Lord. It's only us that turn away from you. It's only us, the human beings made in your image, Lord. It's only us like you 
that refuse, Lord, to uh, return and give you praise. It's only us that sin. It's only us, Lord, that ruin and mar the world that you have made. It's only you, God, who can fix what we've broken. Only you, Lord, who can fix what's broken in me. God, if you could create all of this simply by your word, then, Lord, I know that you can speak into my heart and speak into the hearts of those in the sound of my voice. And, Lord, you and you alone can recreate us, remake us. You and you alone can erase our guilt, our shame, our regrets. You and you alone can replace the sorrow and anxiety and depression and worry, shame under which we live. You and you alone can give us a new life, a new future. God, you have made us, but we are badly broken. We want to ask you to remake us through Jesus. Lord, I pray that all of us in this house would not be distracted, would not be discouraged by things we cannot possibly understand. But Lord, help us to understand your great power and your great love for us. Pray these things in the name of the Savior, Jesus.